Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Advanced Basal Cell and Squamous Cell Cancers, and this is part one of Living with Advanced Skin Cancer and Melanoma. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of you on the program today. There are over 225 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from a number of different countries, um, Canada, Egypt, Iran, Kenya, Mauritius, Malawi, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a, a global call, and Morocco as well. Um, and this is a global call, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medical Oncology, Melanoma and Cutaneous Malignancies, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing overview of advanced skin cancers, including advanced basal cell and advanced squamous cell cancers, new treatment approaches, including the emerging role of targeted therapy, clinical trial updates, and tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, including sun and wind safety tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be able to spend time with you today to talk about uh, this very important area of uh, skin cancer with tremendous new promising changes. And I'm glad to also uh, be on the program Dr. Fleischman, who will complement many of the things I say today in, in addition to adding some great new information. So it's, it's, it's really fantastic that we're having this time together. I want to start by talking about the word advanced skin cancer. It's very important to do that because it puts things in perspective. Basal cell carcinoma and, and squamous cell carcinomas are very common skin cancers. Uh, they, uh, in the sense that there are almost uh, uh, over half a million cases um, of squamous cells, for example, uh, in the country uh, in any given year, and, uh, and, and that number is exceeded by the number of basal cells. Uh, these are usually handled very easily in a dermatologist's office. They're usually small lesions, but every once in a while, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, and sometimes some extenuating circumstances, these can become uh, more advanced, and, uh, uh, occupy a larger area of the skin, become more invasive, and they're therefore labeled advanced skin cancers. And I want to speak about those. So again, put things in perspective, uh, our dermatology colleagues can easily handle the vast majority of these uh, what Dr. Fleischman and I are going to speak about are the uh, less, much less common variant uh, of advanced uh, basal cell and squamous cell. Having said that, the reason why this program is important is because there are 
been some tremendous new changes here. In the past, um, resection uh, and removal of these have uh, been the standard of care, uh, and um, uh, and that reflects the fact that this is a uh, a definitive procedure. If you actually do surgery, it, you can get it out. Uh, and number two is a fact. It reflects the fact that we just haven't had great medicines to go along with this, but that has changed more recently. Um, I want to point out that uh, that these two cancers are lumped together because of the fact that they uh, both come from skin, and 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 where they come from gives it gives them their name. For example, the squamous cell. Uh, Carcinomas come from the squamous layers of the skin, the outside layer. In fact, squamous is Latin for, for uh, like a fish scale-like. So the outside layer of the skin uh, are made up of squamous cells, and it is that layer that gives rise to uh, 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 squamous cell carcinomas. The deeper layer, the basal layers of the skin, which are a little bit deeper, they give rise to the basal cell carcinoma. And of course, there are melanocytes there as well, which gives rise to the uh, dark pigment of skin. And in other programs, we talked about melanoma. And just to put things in perspective, that comes from the melanin cells of the skin. So therefore, uh, the anatomy of the skin talks about uh, and informs the name of the cancer. And you look very different under the microscope, and hence you can tell these apart quite easily. Um, the, the, the other thing that's important is that they also share some common risk factors. Um, sun exposure is uh, high in the list, and there is a correlation between the amount of sun exposure people um, uh, undergo and the development of, um, uh, of these cancers. Uh, in addition, uh, age uh, is also another risk factor, is one that, is a so, that we can't do much about, but nevertheless, it's an associated risk factor. The older we are, the higher the risk of these diseases. And there are other much less common situations, including chronic inflammatory conditions, um, uh, genetic conditions, which are exceedingly rare. We won't really touch upon this here. Um, in the, I want to talk a little bit about what therapy was like uh, before the new era. Um, in the case of uh, uh, both squamous cells and basal cells, I mentioned that resection uh, removal uh, surgically was their approach. It could be done in an uh, outpatient office setting with a dermatologist, and if a larger lesion was, was present, you had a procedure called Mohs surgery, in which you have a, a sort of more extensive resection of the superficial surface. Um, if the, the lesion became more advanced because, and became more invasive, then we would bring in uh, skin surgeons, uh, so surgeons versed in skin surgery, uh, including head and neck surgeons and general surgeons, depending what part of the body it is. So very surgical-centric. Uh, in the case of using medicines, um, in squamous cell carcinomas, we've aimed at targeting some of the molecules which are found in squamous cell, uh, and these epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR type approaches. Chemotherapy was also used in the past. Uh, although efficacious, uh, these have now been superseded by new medicines, which I'll talk about in a few seconds. For basal cell carcinomas, these are, uh, these are again, um, superficial lesions initially, which can become more invasive in rare cases. And we're talking about the rare cases here today. But in those cases, in the past, um, 
once uh, surgery just, uh, uh, became um, something that, that was not easily performed, then the use of medicines uh, uh, became the next step. Um, the most common medicine used in basal cell carcinoma are what are what call are what's called hedgehog inhibitors. And why do we call them hedgehog inhibitors? Because uh, uh, this was named after a molecular pathway found inside cancer cells. And they were called hedgehog because the defect that they gave rise to in fruit flies, yes, fruit flies, uh, was reminiscent of the sort of serrated uh, um, um, appearance of the, the hedgehog skin. So that sort of, uh, that sort of appearance gave rise to um, the mutation and to the name of the pathway. So I'm only telling you this as a matter of interest also because uh, uh, these were actually named by the discoverers and that's why the name was given to them. Hedgehog inhibitors are medicines that can inhibit this pathway. Why? Because the hedgehog pathway is overly active in basal cell carcinoma, giving rise to the disease, and therefore hedgehog inhibitors. And you would have heard about these if, if you were on these medicines. And examples of these include uh, sunitigib and vismotigib. And, and I mention it only because of the tremendous advances in molecular biology leading to these pills. And so um, I won't uh, want to leave out my radiation oncology colleagues. Um, oftentimes for advanced, uh, for advanced lesions, skin lesions, um, uh, radiation uh, oncologists are called in to either help with the primary treatment of these lesions or to help consolidate surgical results if the resection margins are close. So that was sort of the state of the art until recently. And what has happened recently is recognition that uh, both squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma are sensitive uh, to treatment with uh, immunotherapy. So what is immunotherapy? Immunotherapy are medicines that are used to um, uh, uh, trigger uh, the patient's own immune system in order to uh, uh, have that their body's immune system fight the cancer. And I remind folks that the immune system is not one organ. It's a system. It's a conglomeration of, uh, of, of organ systems like the liver, the spleen, lymph nodes, bone marrow, thymus gland, so on and so forth. And that entire system is, the, is built into each and every one of us uh, in order to fight off things that don't belong to us. So therefore, it's a very powerful system. And, by, and, and, and the key here was recognition that, um, that by uh, activating that patient's immune system, that that, uh, these, uh, that that patient's immune system would be able to fight off and, uh, and treat the cancer that way. So those are the new changes that are happening. And I'll defer to, uh, uh, to Dr. Fleischman, who will be speaking after me, to speak a little bit about the, the kind of things that can happen while you're on immunotherapy. Um, I want to spend a, the, the next few minutes um, uh, talking about how we got here in the first place. All the things I talked to you about, especially with immunotherapy, are the product of clinical trials. So what's that? I tell patients that clinical trials is a way, a mechanism, that we can bring out new drugs to be used in people. Uh, by doing it consistently the same way across uh, multiple sites uh, that are running the clinical trial uh, by 
by having a standard way of assessing patients, by having a standard way of getting patients on trial, by having a standard way of, of following patients and, uh, and a standard way of, of determining whether the therapy is working or not, the end result is that we can figure out whether new strategies are helpful, not helpful, or, or harmful, uh, uh, and to figure out the best way to use them. That's what a clinical trial does. Now, some of my patients uh, are worried that there may be placebos in these trials or control arms. That's something, of course, to ask the investigator. Uh, it will be clearly marked out in the consent form we give all our patients. But most of the time, I would say almost all the time, in tre treatment of advanced uh, cancers, that, um, uh, that it's un very uncommon to have placebo trials. Uh, and uh, the most important thing is to make sure that you ask your, your physician about that. Most of the trials in this space are treatment trials. And the reason why the trials, again, as I said to you, is to have a consistent, uh, systematic way of assessing that. So clinical trials are important in this context. And I remind all my patients uh, that uh, the person who's the boss of that is you, right? Uh, and uh, as we present these trials to you as uh, cl clinical investigators, uh, you will be given information, and you have every right to ask any question you want and to, um, uh, and to um, come off the trial as you leave. You are the boss. That's important. I mention it here and give it some time because uh, as we move forward, there are new medicines coming forward, which we believe are going to be just as helpful as immunotherapy, and the only way this is going to advance is trials. I want to spend the last... A few minutes talking about uh, uh, caring for your skin during cancer treatment, and uh, and it's particularly wind and safety tips. Um, I tell folks that uh, if you end up in my shop uh, with a skin cancer, uh, that really means that your skin has already notified you that uh, it can give rise to skin cancers. And from that point on, we try to make sure we don't add increased risk to it. So um, uh, I partner up with that patient's dermatologist. We make sure that we institute what I call sun smartness. I'm not advocating that people live in caves, but on the other hand, you want to make sure that you manage any future exposure to sun, and especially excessive sun. Um, some of the medicines that I talked to you about can cause rash and can cause uh, 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 skin symptoms like itchiness and so on and so forth, they are handled on a case-by-case -case basis because rash is a, a common endpoint uh, that that comes from multiple can can, can come from multiple uh, diverse causes. And understanding the cause that gives rise to the rash is the key for therapy. So oftentimes I tell my patients if you have a problem you're worried about, take a picture in this common day of. Uh, everyone having a, a cell phone with a, uh, a camera, take a picture. Uh, uh, I tell folks, uh, always use a good, consistent light source. If you have doubt, then maybe do it by a window because the sun is always a consistent light source. Why? Because we look at pigmentation and color. And, uh, and share that with your doctors because oftentimes one of the questions we ask is, when did it start? What did it look like in the beginning? How did it change? And so on and so forth. So. Uh, Use the cell phone to help you. So let me end by, uh, by saying uh, that this is a time of great promise. We have multiple new possibilities in advanced 
squamous cell carcinoma and advanced basal cell carcinoma in that um, uh, the treatment of these have tremendous promise, including uh, uh, significant responses and even a possibility of cure, even with advanced disease. At that, I, I will leave you to uh, Dr. Fleischman, and uh, I'll be here for questions later on. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to participate in this program. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really an outstanding presentation. I um, usually set the stage for today's program, and I, I can't thank you enough, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, now part of the Mount Sinai Health System. He's also an author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing managing treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, for signing on to this call. There's a lot of uh, important and very useful information for people who either have advanced skin cancers or are caring for someone with advanced skin cancers, and we'd like to get the information out as, as well as possible. So Dr. Wang uh, spoke about uh, the types of side effects that many of these advanced treatments uh, can bring on. Not all of them do. Not all of them do in everybody. People are different. But one of the important things about the, these groups, and there are a number of different um, drug families of, of these advanced treatments in cancer that have uh, some side effects in common and some that are particular to each group. But some of them, to the person who is not aware, can be seen as trivial. Oh, it's a little rash. Oh, my skin is a little itchy. But uh, they are important side effects and the most important thing, as Dr. Wang said, is to make sure that your treatment team knows that these are happening. Um, a small rash, let's say, uh, that's scratched, especially um, with hands and nails that are not 100% clean, can easily get infected. And that can cause a whole series of problems um, because of the need for sometimes very strong antibiotics because um, most people who are in the middle of uh, having cancer and cancer treatment have a lower resistance than the population as a whole. So um, some of these may seem trivial to you, but please report them to your treatment team. It's very important. Um, just a word on some of the more serious side effects, which may not cause as much discomfort as uh, even though they need attention. So some of the new um, targeted therapies in cancer um, come with a risk of a change in blood pressure. Sometimes that can raise your blood pressure quite a bit. Um, and that's something that we often can't tell without measuring our pressure. But if you are uh, someone with high blood pressure and uh, it's one of those drugs, the treatment team may advise you to um, 
have a blood pressure monitoring cup at home. Many of them are automatic now. You don't need to know to listen to the sounds. Um, and they're good at showing if there's a very high or very low blood pressure. So it's important to do that if your treatment team recommends it based upon your system. Um, there also could be changes in your blood's ability to clot. Um, and um, that can affect wound healing, but it can also affect if you get a cut or uh, uh, if you hit your, your hand or any part of your body uh, inadvertently, if you're getting, getting out of a car or in a doorway, you may see black and blue marks or these small kinds of um, look like little broken blood vessels. Um, if, if that happens, please do notify your treatment team because it may be that some blood tests need to be done to check about how well your system is clotting in general. And the third serious one, that, that is not often, and that doesn't happen all the time, but if it happens, please tell your treatment team if suddenly you get extremely tired. Fatigue is one of those uh, kinds of symptoms that could be just because we didn't get a great sleep last night or worried about something, or um, it could be that uh, it could be anemic. There are a whole host of things that can cause fatigue. So those are the three symptoms that where you really need to um, fess up, uh, speak with your treatment team, uh, different teams communicate in different ways, some by uh, text message, some by email, some by phone call, however you do it, make sure that your team knows about it so they can help you and avoid having serious problems. Again, not common, uh, but when they happen, you want to be on top of them. The other uh, side effects are those that I think the general public may seem as trivial. Uh, could be mouth sores, change in your hair, uh, patchy loss of hair, change in the color and consistency of your hair, um, uh, blisters, peeling, cracked skin. Those kinds of things um, we often don't even bring to medical attention if we're not in the middle of uh, treating cancer. We often take care of them ourselves. Those of us who are lucky enough to live near um, uh, pharmacies, there's probably a whole aisle or two of creams and ointments and sprays that will help us treat our own skin conditions. Um, Ask your treatment team what you could, what you should be using, and what you shouldn't be using. And again, it really depends upon which of the different family or families, because sometimes two families of targeted therapies are mixed together, um, that you're using and what your medical history is. Uh, a, a common thing to, that many people will do is, especially in the United States, 1% hydrocortisone cream and ointment are widely available without a prescription in pharmacies and may vary throughout the world, different uh, percentages, different types, whether they're creams or ointments. Make sure that's okay with your treatment team. If uh, you're using aloe-containing substances, again, some people are highly allergic to those, unrelated to their cancer, but they may have an even more exaggerated reaction, or it may be really helpful to them, so please, that's, uh, instead of just uh, going about what uh, seems to be sort of common sense and treating these on your own, please speak with your team. And as Dr. Wong says, most of us have access to a camera. 
we can take a photo of the problem and get a rather quick answer, and it may even avoid actually having a, an office visit. So the bottom line here is there are some serious and some seemingly trivial uh, side effects. Don't um, treat them on your own. Ask your team. Make sure that they understand uh, what's happening to you so that they can help you, uh, especially knowledgeable, uh, because they're especially knowledgeable about the types of targeted therapies you're taking. So um, the role of communication is extremely important here, uh, maybe even more important than for other situations. And as I alluded to before, uh, many of us are used to having inpatient in a, a visit uh, in person uh, where we're actually in someone's office that somebody can take a look at things um, they routinely would measure our temperature and our pulse and our blood pressure at the beginning of the visit and with um, living in a in a world that was pulling out of the covid pandemic We've all gotten used to telehealth visits and visits that occur over video or over the telephone. And those can be a little bit more limiting in, as far as uh, what parts of the physical exam can be done, but can also be very, very helpful for uh, certain groups of people. And um, one, we have learned quite a bit that telehealth visits can be extremely uh, useful and efficient uh, for handling certain things, but not others. So um, knowing that, if you're going to have a telehealth visit and you've never done it before, and that's happened, that's still happening around the world to many people who are used to in-person in visits only to their providers, um, there's some preparation to do. Uh, because it's a, sort of a new way of relating to people, if you have questions, make sure to write them down. Um, the uh, provider's office should be calling you or contacting you either by email or some way a day or so before so you know how the connection is going to be made. Is it will be it on a regular telephone uh, that, and you can use your cell phone to have an audio call or is it a video system, what they call a video platform where uh, you and the provider can see each other um, and uh, you can point the camera at some of these skin reactions and see uh, if you can get some information about how they can best be treated. Um, sometimes you have to call in. Sometimes the office will call you. Find out about all that in advance. The other um, important thing here is that it used to be that if you had a concerned relative or a friend who was knowledgeable and wanted to come with you to your visits, they would often have to travel to another city and sometimes even another country. And now if they have an internet connection with uh, your, per, your permission and with the office's awareness that they can join you in the telehealth call and they can participate, they can remind you to ask questions, they can take notes, uh, so this is an amazing opportunity, I think, that none of us uh, quite harnessed uh, well before the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, although there are some disadvantages, there are some advantages. As long as you know how the call is going to be done, make sure your device is well charged if you're using um, a phone or a, a tablet or a computer. Uh, make sure you're in a quiet place with electricity. And all these things seem uh, kind of simple, but they can um, impede a well-done telehealth visit if 
you run out of uh, battery power on the device that you're using. Um, and then um, know, you know how to sign on, who's going to sign on with you, and, and those sorts of details. It can be very, very helpful, even though there may be parts of the exam that can't be done, and it may mean that the, then after that you need to make an in-person visit to your provider's office. So this has been a good and bad, and um, I think we're all learning how to do this better and better as time goes on. Uh, the other thing Dr. Messner wanted us to talk about is the idea that with the changes in the uh, uh, the privacy and confidentiality uh, of medical records in the United States over the last 10 years or so. Uh, there is also a part of the uh, governmental policy and of the law that says that you can access your own records. Um, and that's great. Uh, having information is really helpful. Um, and it used to be that that meant uh, when you're in your provider's office asking for copies of tests or asking them in advance to prepare copies and they would actually be able to charge you certain, um, which should be a small amount uh, for copying each page and for assembling the document together. Now that we're, um, many of us, or most of us are in electronic health records, those can be open to you um, through an electronic medium, through uh, another platform, an electronic health record or electronic medical record platform. There are a number of uh, large ones and some, some smaller uh, startup companies, but you may be able to actually see the reports of blood tests or x-rays, CAT scans or MRIs or PET scans, even pathology reports. Sometimes you can access that before the provider's office has had a chance to even read them <laughs> or look at them because uh, when the electronic window is open, uh, sometimes you can look at them at the same time that the provider's office can. Sometimes there's a delay built into the system and the provider can see it a day or two or a short amount of time before you can. It gives them a chance to call you or set up an appointment if something needs to be reviewed. This sounds wonderful, and I think in many cases it's extraordinary um, to have the access to this level of information. The problem is that especially during cancer treatment, some of the abnormal tests are expectable and they're helpful, and an abnormal test doesn't always mean something is wrong. Having a normal test, let's say, in a blood count or a hemoglobin or hematocrit, depending upon the type of treatment you get, is expected. And if, it's, if, if the test looks like it's reported to be normal on the report, it may not be right for you. The additional thing is that although we've opened access to all these reports, there's still a lot of medical jargon, especially in the reports that have um, word descriptions or text descriptions, as we now say, uh, particularly in imaging, x-ray scans and the pathology reports there's a lot there to be misunderstood if you don't do this all the time so when you read this stuff please keep in mind that um, you need a translator <laughs> it's just like kind of reading another foreign, another foreign language you need somebody to help you put it in context of your situation but also understand what the radiologist is seeing may be something to tip off some more testing, it's not a, a, 
a definite sort of prediction of what's going to happen because very few of our tests predict the future. They generally say what's happening at the moment that the test is being, um, is being carried out. So uh, please, if you look at these, make sure that you have a way to interpret them uh, with information and with experience because otherwise you may find that you're worrying about something that um, doesn't need that much level of worry and that something, again, some of the values are uh, and should be um, considered in the abnormal range and that's what you're supposed to have in context of your situation and the treatment you're getting. So uh, a lot of information. I, I hope this is helpful and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, wonderful presentation. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services um, and uh, just so you're familiar with them. Um, cancer Care offers free programs and services to people living with cancer and their loved ones. And those services include, well, first of all, we have a HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673. And that HOPE line provides um, a chance to call us um, during uh, Monday through Friday from uh, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. And, uh, and we offer um, uh, um, a chance to speak with one of our oncology social workers. They're the ones who answer the phones, and they would be able to help you. There is no wait time to speak to an oncology social worker, so you'd be able to call and connect with someone right away. And usually when you call, a person has a specific question that they want to ask. And then after they ask that question, um, the, social, the social worker does go over all the other services we offer. And those services include support, online support groups, and the online support groups are both cancer-specific groups, groups on different types of cancers, and also groups um, that um, are for caregivers or young adults or partners, spouses, um, uh, so really cover all different topics, um, and we have lots of those groups. And you can actually um, go to our website at www.cancercare.org and see all the different support groups that we offer um, there. Um, we also offer resource navigation. So if we don't have the resource you need, um, our resource navigation team will actually work with you and, and not just give you a list of places to call, but they will actually work with you, take you to the places so you have food insecurity issues they will help you to find a place either in your community or in your region or nationally that will provide what you need and will connect you to that resource virtually together. And we also have coping circles, which are support groups focused on particular topics. Um, and we also offer financial, practical, and co-payment assistance, which can make a tremendous difference with the costs of both medication and um, treatment. Um, and we also offer um, these workshops, um, about 80 of them per year, and we also have a whole listing of publications that you can access as well. So that gives you a thumbnail sketch of our services. We have many more, but when you go to our website, you'll be able to see all of them. And for the people who are on the call who are national, national participants, 
you actually can go to our website. You can sign up for these workshops because those are available to everybody and our publications as well. So I hope that helps you. And now we have time for uh, questions for our speakers, Q&A. And I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up the questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And let's see our first question of one of our participants. Um, this will be for Dr. Um, Wong. I took a photo of Amelia in my eyelid area and sent it to my long-term dermatology surgeon who said it may or may not be a basal cell or as I have basal cell um, uh, BCCNS, I've had basal BBC. I had uh, as I have BCNS. She said she will biopsy it next time I come in in a few months. In the meantime, is there anything that can be done to get rid of amelia around the eye in hopes it is not BCC related? Okay, so that's uh, a question with some specificity. So, um, and I think you you also mentioned a critical fact. This is a, a person who knows you. This is uh, your long-term dermatologist. And I usually defer to them because they know the behavior of your skin. They know uh, how these things appear in other parts of your body. Uh, people's skin tend to behave in a consistent fashion. But between people, they may be different. For instance, the way one person's skin uh, behaving to um, uh, something as simple as a, a boil may be different than someone else. We've all heard of situations where people's skin heal differently through surgical incisions. So honestly, not to size up the question, but I think the most important thing is to really check in with your home dermatologist as to the best way to get at this, right? Uh, I will point out that biopsy is a right answer because that gives uh, a uh, um, that gives rise to tissue that can be examined under a microscope, and you come back with a definitive diagnosis. Giving um, the lesion a name helps you understand what you should do. Then the labels and names that we give cancers are also attached to uh, their their behavior um, uh, and uh, their their, um, and their response to therapy. So uh, that biopsy is particularly important. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. And another question for you, uh, Dr. Um, Wong. I'm worried about my squamous cell cancer becoming metastatic. Are there preventive measures I can take? What are some signs to look out for that would indicate it has spread? If you could address this in a general way. Sure, the vast majority of squamous cells, vast, vast, vast majority of squamous cells do not become metastatic, right? Um, and you have to differentiate between a metastatic situation or a situation in which you have another squamous cell become recurrent. What do I mean by that? Some people have a squamous cell, um, uh, let's just say, I'll use an example, forearm. It's common because that's a sun-exposed area. Uh, and, uh, and then you get maybe another one sometime later another squamous cell, and that may not represent a metastatic spread. It just represents the fact that that particular situation in that particular person has given rise to a situation where the skin is now becoming very sensitive and uh, and uh, allows uh, squamous cells to appear. 
that's an example of the situation where you uh, you can mistakenly think this is metastatic. Metastatic uh, squamous cells and beta cells exceedingly rare. Uh, one of the characteristics are uh, changes within the lesion proper, where you have rapid growth, where uh, where you can actually feel it uh, growing down deeper. There are ways you can tell, doctors can tell, and uh, uh, lesions that uh, become uh, recurrent in the same area over and over again, because it means that uh, the first time you you removed it, that there were some residual left behind, and that residual became more active again. The, those are some common clues uh, that go with that. But I want to just reassure folks that uh, metastatic squamous and metastatic basals are exceedingly rare. They're rare enough such that they are they meet the definition of what the National Cancer Institute calls rare tumors, right? But the purpose of this program today was to really sort of showcase some of the new things that have happened that have really uh, uh, you know, opened the door to new therapies for these advanced cases, whereas in the past uh, they were very difficult to treat because of the lack of uh, sort of new, of uh, effective drugs happening. Uh, but again, uh, that situation is a uh, very uncommon one. Thank you so much. Um, and Dr. Wong, can you speak to um, your opinion on photodynamic therapy, PTD, to treat squamous cell cancer? So that, uh, yes, so that is in the realm of uh, a strategy to treat superficial tumors. Uh, it has its place in the, in, the, in the way we treat these cancers. When you have a malignancy which is fairly superficial, we know that by giving intravenous therapies, for example, that that may not be effective because of the fact that if that you have to have uh, medicines that go through blood, get into the skin, and, get, and then attack the lesion. And if it's very superficial, it tends to not be effective. So for, for photodynamic therapy, an example of a superficial um, um, treatment uh, uh, on these sort of uh, lesions, there are specific circumstances um, where you will use these, uh, and you have to do with certain subsets of skin cancers. Uh, the details of this really matter, so I won't go into into this here because uh, uh, you know the type of uh, skin malignancy, uh, the the location, the way it shows up, and its response to previous therapy all go into the decision whether or not photodynamic uh, the therapy will be helpful. So. Um, the details in this truly, truly matter. Excellent. Um, and this question, um, my son was recently diagnosed, for Dr. Wong, my son was recently diagnosed with basal cell um, nevus syndrome, BCNS. Can you suggest some steps I could take to lower his risk of developing basal cell carcinoma? Right. So that, again, is a, this is a, a, a fortunately rare situation, basal cell nevus syndrome is is linked to um, genetic changes within uh, the skin of that person. Um, I think the best advice I would give you is to um, really be under the care of um, centers that have expertise in these areas, mostly academic centers. And the reason I, I say this is because many of them have uh, genetic programs that are uh, centered around um, 
specific, uh, uh, sort of centered around people who have genetically driven uh, cancers or malignancies. This is, again, a, a very unusual situation. They make up a, a, the vast minority of cancers to begin with, and also, likewise, a vast minority of basal cells, just so you know. Um, uh, and therefore, being treated in these centers is important. Uh, there are a variety of, of techniques we use, um, and they can be, uh, and these patients are handled in what's what we call multidisciplinary uh, clinics in which you have surgeons, dermatologists, medical oncologists. You may even have uh, uh, um, uh, MO surgeons involved. Um, uh, these clinics are built uh, uh, where they bring in all the various specialties to address the specific concerns. And the strategy we use depends on where that person is in the spectrum of their disease. Uh, the basal cell nevus syndrome um, is a situation which people can develop multiple basal cells, and but the disease can have variable penetrance. In other words, how it expresses in people is different from person to person to person. And, uh, and uh, because of that, it's uh, it, the treatments that we do are uh, linked to where that person is uh, in their progression of disease and in the penetrance of that disease into that person. Excellent. And a question for, um, for Dr. Fleischman. Um, I'm a really outdoorsy person, but should I be totally avoiding the sun during my course of treatment? Are there things I can do that will help me maintain my active outdoor lifestyle? Uh, well, um, sometimes you can take uh, some really good precautions. Um, some, in addition to uh, sunlight being a risk uh, factor for some types of skin cancers, and that, that's uh, pretty well accepted. During treatment, uh, it, both for skin cancers and pretty much for many, many, many other cancer and non-cancer diseases, uh, it is possible or likely to have a reaction to the light, which uh, a proper name for that is photo, a photosensitive reaction. And as a result of that, it may be a good idea to avoid both uh, uh, ultraviolet and infrared rays, the rays that come in actual sunlight. So uh, we normally advise um, using protective barriers or sunscreens. Um, there are different types. Some of them are just barriers form a coating over the skin. Uh, some of them are actual um, uh, chemicals that will change the nature of how the skin absorbs the sun, both the uh, ultra, different types of ultraviolet rays, A and B. But, but in addition to that, there is a whole selection of UV or ultraviolet blocking clothing lines that uh, some are... Uh, some are heavier, some are lighter, especially in hot climates. That can be very effective. Uh, the uh, better brands are actually rated to make sure that there's a certain amount of protection. So you're not just uh, limited to either not going outside in daylight or uh, using um, some uh, lotions on your skin, which may or may not be helpful to you. So there are uh, clothing lines that can actually help protect the bulk of your skin, and obviously you have to do something about exposed skin, like 
uh, in the face and on the upper part of the hands. But there are many options. Again, uh, speak with your providers. They would be the best ones to tell you what their experience is and where to turn. Excellent. And Dr. Wong, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I think Dr. Fleischman sort of uh, uh, nailed it in the head. I, I'm, I tell folks, you know, to be sun smarter. Some things very easy to do. You know, I mean, do you really have to wash the car at noon with your shirt off? You know, kind of thing. So, uh, uh, I'm, you know, I just think just being smart. I'm also a big proponent of barrier protection with clothes, and many of the sportswear companies. Um, make high weave, uh, you know, extremely high uh, um, SPF rating because it's clothing uh, barriers that are breathable and uh, don't, make you, uh, don't make you feel like you're wearing a rubber uh, umbrella raincoat on or something. So, um, but otherwise, Dr. Fletcher really uh, hit it on the head. Excellent. Thank you. And um, so a question about um, if a person has, continued pain, for Dr. Wong, if a person has continued pain and weaknesses after Mohs surgery in leg from squamous cell cancer um, and blood work negative for cancer blood markers, is this from the surgery or something else? Well, there again, so this is another one where detail matters, so it depends where you are uh, in the body anatomically. Uh, you know, we are built along a, uh, a sort of architectural plan, and if you um, had most surgery over a what we call an elegant area, a part of the body which is, you know, um, uh, richly endowed with nerve fibers, then uh, then you have to be aware that that uh, uh, that you know, pain can be uh, something that can occur in that setting more often than not. Uh, so more often than other places, and there are ways of managing that. Um, the the devil is in the details here, right? And so uh, I always tell folks, and even even if that patient comes to see me, I will pull in their most surgeon and uh, and manage that case together um, uh, to understand what we have to do. Um, we uh, exert vigilance, as well, of course, uh, for uh, cancer, uh, and that again, the details matter as to where it is. And uh, uh, what they found in their microscope, and 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 the location of the, the tumor in relation to other critical structures. So, um, just um, uh, uh, the, the the best management of this is to actually touch base with the person who actually did the surgery as the first maneuver, right? Because uh, they understand your body the best, uh, and then move on from that. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Fleischman. My 6-year-old daughter is obsessed with tanning beds, and squamous cell cancer is very common in our family. What would you suggest I do to sway her from continuing to use tanning beds? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, sometimes the, the need to feel attractive as a teenager overcomes any good uh, information about the risk uh, along with smoking and, and many other um, activities that uh, we do, I, I would I would really try to um, bring the facts in in a non-scary way and have a discussion. 
at number two, see if there are any alternatives uh, like some self-tanning creams. Some of them are um, quite effective. They, you need to learn how to put them on, uh, but they may give you the same appearance with a lot less danger. Um, and a visit to a local dermatologist may be of help in this situation. But just bring the facts and try to support the notion that uh, teenagers like to be part of a group and be accepted by their peers and sometimes that uh, overpowers any logical argument. I, I, can I just add that when you said yes. tanning bed and teenager, I kind of, my heart rate went up uh, <laughs> because we know that uh, the, the, you know, the skin damage that occurs and gives rise to malignancy uh, occurs early on, and there's a long lag period. I tell all my patients that you know, what we're seeing here today uh, uh, with skin cancer is uh, the outcome of what happened many, many years ago, and, and it's cumulative. We also do know that the worst uh, sort of combination of skin injury is that is one that happens in and around puberty uh, for men and for women, and that has to do with the fact that our, our skin is changing at that time and most vulnerable to uh, sun damage. Uh, uh, as a reflection of, and recognition of this, uh, multiple states have actually um, uh, had laws come out um, which prohibit minors from um, uh, being able to go and get sun tanning. Some states state that a parent has to sign off on it before they can. Obviously, if you're an adult, then that's different. Um, but this is, but what I told you is a reflection of our recognition that um, that would be uh, uh, that sun tanning at uh, uh, at the time of puberty in people who are young is uh, a risk factor with uh, 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 with risk that can extend into their uh, later years. And in plain English, one way of putting it is that your skin will look really fantastic once you are older, right? So. Excellent. Both excellent points. You said great. Thank you. And another question, how do I broach the subject of my upcoming surgery? This is for Dr. Fleischman. How do I broach the subject of my upcoming surgery for my basal cell carcinoma on my face with my children who are five and seven? I'd rather not scare them. Well, when, I, when it comes to, um, to giving cancer information and discussing it with kids, you need to think about you know, where they are developmentally and emotionally. Um, and uh, kids at that age often are worried that, number one, you're going to disappear, or number two, it's their fault. <laughs> so um, I would try to put it in basic, very clear, simple language that uh, you have uh, a growth or I don't like the word boo-boo with kids because kids get boo-boos all the time or when, they, when they fall and then they think they're serious, but a spot uh, that uh, may have to be taken out and that you may have a bandage on for a while and you'll be in the doctor's office for a few hours. Uh, I would stick to those sort of uh, very simple kinds of uh, explanations and make sure they understand that it's not their fault. Excellent. And um, actually, um, I also want to remind everyone this is part two of, of the series, um, and the next one is taking place on May 5th, 
emerging treatments for metastatic melanoma. And I'm going to ask both Dr. Um, Dr. Wong and Dr. Fleischman to just provide a takeaway for our participants today on today's program. Just uh, Dr. Wong, if you want to go first, just a takeaway, and then Dr. Fleischman. Sure. Takeaway is uh, lots of hope and opportunity for the advanced uh, uh, screening cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma, the emphasis on advanced. The vast, 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 vast majority of these lesions are handled without difficulty easily as a matter of routine in a dermatologist's office and, um, and, uh, and to be sun smart in our approach to everyday life. Thanks. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman? Uh, yes, in summary, uh, for people who are on advanced treatments to really get a good sense from your providers about what the expectable and sometimes even rare side effects are and what to do about them, especially the ones you can't feel, like a change in your blood pressure, and um, report anything that seems um, kind of unimportant because sometimes it could be important and then you find that out. Uh, and to be really cautious when looking at your own records online uh, and not jump to conclusions uh, because it needs to be in context of you and the state of your health before the cancer treatment and the kinds of things that cancer treatment may and should interfere with during, in your blood tests and in your imaging and in your pathology and go over it with someone who you really trust. Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been terrific. And I want to also thank our participants who asked such really great questions. And, um, and please, uh, some of you have signed up for May 5th, but if you haven't, go ahead and sign up for that program as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I, I actually um, wouldn't want anyone to leave this program today feeling you're alone in coping with, uh, with any type of cancer whether it be advanced skin cancer or any type of cancer, I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support and we're going to help you. And also any of the information we gave out today, any of the, um, the websites or phone numbers, we will be sending you a survey monkey at the end of today's, well, in a couple of days after this workshop, and then you'll be receiving a, um, you'll be receiving, um, in addition to the survey monkey evaluation, you'll also be getting all the resources that we mentioned during the program, as well as information about how to access clinical trials and things like that. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And you're not alone. You have your healthcare team. And um, you have Cancer Care. And there are a lot of other resources out there that you'll be able to access as well to get help with your questions and concerns. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.